0: What do disciples do? We talk a lot about discipleship. We talk a lot about following Jesus. And you could probably answer that question in a variety of ways, couldn't you? What do disciples do? Well, they go to church. And here we are. (laughs) Uh, They gather with other disciples, other believers, other followers of Jesus to to pray and to sing and to to read the Scriptures together and listen to the Scriptures explained and uh, to share Holy Communion. That's one thing disciples do. Maybe they go to Bible study. Some of us do that. Monday morning, perhaps, Wednesday afternoon, or maybe Sunday school. We're with a group of some sort because we want to go deeper. We, we love Jesus and we want to learn more and be formed. So we, that's something disciples do. Uh, disciples do mission, don't they? Uh, maybe you know, we're going to be talking about mission a few minutes after the service. Maybe that's the kind of thing we're thinking in terms of discipleship. Maybe we're going to the local mission and we're serving. Maybe you're going on a trip to Louisiana this summer and you're going to be serving folks there. Maybe you're going to Guatemala. Those are the kinds of things disciples do. If you're not going, maybe you're helping to send somebody else. That's the kind of thing disciples do. So we could answer the question in a lot of ways. I'm wondering today, though, how it would shape our understanding of discipleship if we looked at what Jesus says about it first. A lot of times you can figure out the most important thing when you look at the first thing someone says. How do they introduce Whatever it is they're talking about. And so if we we take out the Gospel of Matthew and we go through it and we find the first place where Jesus says, follow me. That's our focus, this this series of sermons, where Jesus is saying, follow me. What does it mean to follow him and be a disciple? The first place he says, follow me, the next immediate thing he says is what? You heard it a moment ago. I'll teach you how to fish for people, men and women. I'll teach you how to catch them. And so right from the start, at the very beginning, Jesus builds into discipleship, following him. A disciple is just a student, a follower, a learner of Jesus. He builds into it on the ground floor, for starters, the reproduction of the movement. That's what he wants. So maybe we could sum all that up with this one sentence. Jesus calls all disciples to make new disciples. Call that the bottom line today. Jesus calls all disciples to make new disciples. If we look at this first place where he begins to call people to himself as his followers, the first thing he says, he takes this to be massively important, is you've got to find some more people to be followers too. It's not just going to be us. I'm going to teach you how to reach new people. Now the context of this call to follow is Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of heaven. That's why we included verse 17. You kind of know the gospel story, perhaps. You know the gospel of Matthew. Jesus, at this point, is beginning his public ministry. We've heard about his his birth, his miraculous birth. We've heard a little bit about his childhood, not much, though. We know that that guy Herod was trying to kill him and that his family escaped to Egypt to get away from that. We know about his cousin, John the Baptist, who went out and proclaimed repentance and how Jesus was baptized by his cousin, John. And we know about how he went immediately after that into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. And now he's come back, so he's been baptized. He was a child, he's been baptized. Uh, He was tested, he passed the test, and now he's beginning this public phase of his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now it's important to be very clear on what Jesus means when he talks about the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about the sweet by and by. He's not talking about the heaven where you go when you die. It wouldn't make sense, would it? He says, the kingdom of heaven is, he doesn't say, hey, repent, the kingdom of heaven is up there, or hey, repent, the kingdom of heaven is where you go when you die. What does he say? The kingdom of heaven has come near. The kingdom of heaven is approaching. Later on, when he teaches his followers how to pray, and how we prayed just a moment ago, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom is something that comes to earth. And Jesus prays for that and he declares. it, And that's the inauguration of his public ministry. Somehow this kingdom is coming into reality in the world through Jesus. So what is a kingdom? Well, a kingdom is where you have a king. It's very obvious, very simple, very clear. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out that a kingdom is where kings rule, (laughs) isn't it? And so Jesus is talking about the rule of heaven, the reign of heaven, the reign of God coming into reality in the world through what he is doing. And then all of a sudden, he starts calling people to get on board with that. Hey, you follow me. Hey, you come with me. And I'm going to teach you how to, uh, how to fish for people. I'm going to teach you how to reach new people. And so Jesus is showing us what a proper response to the declaration of the kingdom looks like. The kingdom is about following Jesus so that he is ordering our lives as the king. And if we want to respond to that properly, then we need, like Peter and Andrew and James and John and the others he's going to call later, we need to be responding to that call to follow. question is, what does that call look like, the call to follow on day one for Jesus, is a call to reach new people as new disciples, isn't it? So Jesus calls all disciples to make new disciples, and he makes that the paradigmatic model response to the declaration of the kingdom of God. We we love the kingdom of God. We want the kingdom of heaven to come to reality. But if we really want that, and if we really desire it, then allowing Jesus as the king to order our lives so that we're reaching new people for him, is at the heart of what it means to embody and live that. And it's no accident that he puts this in first, is it? It's no accident that he builds this into the mission on day one. It's the first thing out of his mouth. right? He's, he's by the Sea of Galilee. He's inaugurating this ministry. He's got to get a team together. It's very hard to do ministry by yourself, even for Jesus. (laughs) He needs a team, he needs people helping him. We'll talk more about that in a little while. So here he is. He walks by the sea. He sees these two guys Simon, we find out that's, that's Peter. Everybody knows Peter. He's always putting his foot in his mouth. And Peter has a brother, and his brother's name is Andrew. So Jesus goes up to this guy. They're by the sea, they're throwing out their nets. In the ancient world, fishermen didn't use poles with spider wire and things like that. Right? They had these big nets and they'd throw them out there and bring in a big catch. My grandfather would have called it a mess of fish. That was his term. Right? You, ever, you know that one, Tom? Heard that a couple times? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what we did with them? We'd catch them. Well, he caught them. I never caught anything. Uh, he'd have this bu- just bucket full of fish. 40 or, I mean, it was, it was stunning how many fish the guy could catch. He knew right where they were and he'd get them out right away. But he never, he, we never ate them. Because he didn't like to clean them, so he gave them away. There's always a guy under a bridge nearby where, with you put the boat in and the thing, the deal. And so it was always there was always one really happy guy fishing by the bridge. when my granddad got through, when Paul Paul got through fishing, that other guy's gonna eat for weeks. Very generous of him. He didn't like to clean them though. <laughs> so here they are, and they're out there fishing, and they're throwing out their nets, bringing in a mess of fish. And Jesus shows up, and There's no, hey, how's it going? Nice to meet you. I'm Jesus. What's your name? Hey, let's grab coffee sometime. Maybe we can talk about what's going on. There's none of that. He doesn't start like that. He's just, hey, follow me. They're there doing their job, attending to their vocation, and he says, follow me. And the purpose of that following, the first thing he says to articulate the purpose of his calling in their life, I will teach you how to fish for people. I am going to teach you what you need to reach new people and bring them into the joy that is the kingdom of of, of heaven. All of the good, glorious, spectacular, wonderful things that come into being when God is in charge, when God reigns as king, when when that happens, it's your privilege to now introduce new people into that reality. Follow me. I'll teach you how to fish for people. That's the purpose. And Jesus is not asking them to do anything that he's unwilling to do, is he? He's leading by example. I mean, he's doing it. He is fishing for people when he walks up to these guys. On day one. Jesus is fishing for people when he says, hey, follow me. And he expects them to begin doing the same thing. So this, these, these, just these few words, one small interaction illumines so much for us when it comes to Jesus' purposes for us as a church and as individuals in the church together. He wants his people following the model that he's developing. He wants his people engaging new people for the kingdom of heaven. And it's so important. It's the first thing he says. It's the first thing he says he does. Jesus calls all disciples to make new disciples, and he shows us what that looks like in purpose from the start. Now, it's interesting to me who he calls and how he goes about doing it, because he does it in an unusual way. He calls unusual people, and he calls them in an unusual way. Here's what I mean by that. There were lots of folks who had disciples in the ancient world. Disciples, just a fancy word for student, right? a learner. Uh, to disciple someone is to teach them something. To be a disciple is to be a student. So maybe you want to be a, a philosopher in the ancient world. You'd go find somebody like Aristotle or Plato and go to their school and be their disciple. Uh, maybe you want to study a trade. You'd go find someone who was a, a master of the trade and be their disciple. The thing about it teachers in the ancient world is they very rarely, almost never, called their own disciples. You don't get philosopher teachers going out saying, hey, come to my school. You don't get tradesmen going out saying, hey, come be my apprentice. Typically, the students chose the teachers in the ancient world. You had teachers all over the place, but the students would come and say, hey, we heard about your teaching. We heard about your school, your little thing you got going on. We'd love to be a part of that. Can we get in, can we enroll? Jesus takes that paradigm and just flips it on its head. He's not waiting for people to come to him because they never will if he doesn't go find them. He's doing something new, he's doing something different. And so he goes and he finds these guys Peter and Andrew and James and John and he doesn't wait for them to come and ask to learn from him. He initiates the relationship. He proclaims the kingdom. There's and this is a, this is important, friends, because it reminds us that we never start things with Jesus. He always starts things with us. Nobody wakes up having never known Jesus and just says, "Hey, I'm feeling I'm feeling pretty good today. I think I'm gonna, you know, start a relationship with Jesus. I'm just gonna kind of pull myself up." buy my own bootstraps because I've got what it takes and I'm strong enough and I'm going to go find the Lord. He's not looking for me, but I'm going to go find him and I'm just going to get it going. Nobody ever does that. No one seeks Jesus out of their own intuition, out of their own wisdom, uh, out of their own goodness. No one does that. He always starts things. He initiates, we respond. He initiates, we respond. And that is modeled for us here. So he doesn't wait for people to come to him; he goes to them. And I suspect when it comes to making, when it comes to us fishing for people, he does not want us to wait for them to come to us. He expects us to go to them. Never notice when you're fishing. You know, any of you guys ever fish? None of you fit. Right? I'm blown away. All right, three of you do. All right. The fish don't come to you; you have to go find them, right? And someone who's a novice has nowhere doesn't know where to look. Maybe he's got one of those fancy fish finder things on the boat and he can kind of see where they are. But some of you guys, maybe some of you guys in the room, you know where they are right now. And you could go out there at this very moment and find a school and pull out as many as you wanted just like that because you know where to find them. And Jesus is making the point, look, if you're going to fish for people, you don't wait for them to come to you. They ain't going to show up in your living room. you got to go to the lake and get them. you got to go find them. you got to go do the job. So don't sit around and wait for them to come to you You go to them. Jesus calls disciples, and he does it in an unusual way in his world. He does it in an unusual way, and he calls unusual people. What's striking to me about this, I mean, here's a guy who's starting a religious movement, right? Kingdom of heaven. That's about as churchy a thing as you can possibly say, isn't it? But he doesn't go looking for professional ministers, does he? He's not in Jerusalem, he's not in the temple looking for the priests or maybe some scribes who've studied the Old Testament law and know it in detail. That's not who he's he's not looking for pros. He's not looking for vocational members of the clergy. Instead, he goes out by the lake and finds some kind of lower middle class folks. In the ancient world, There was a a small group of people who had most of the money and they were at the very top of society. And then there was a very large group of people who had no money whatsoever and they were peasants and they were at the bottom of society. And then there's a little group of people, you know, bigger than the first group, smaller than the second group, kind of in the middle. Uh, And maybe they own their own business and they could afford to hire a few people to help out. And they weren't living day to day like everyone else was, but they weren't rich either. That's where these guys fit in. They're just kind of normal people. Kind of lower middle class, average, blue collar. They gotta go to work if they want to pay their bills. They got to, but they're not out on the streets begging for food either. One of the other gospel writers tells us that Zebedee had some hired men, right? Kind of maybe he's like a small business owner. He's got a few folks that work for him. He can do that. So you get kind of get a picture of who these guys are. The point is they're not priests. They're not preachers. They're not ministers, right? If Jesus were to show up in Hope Hall looking to start a movement, He wouldn't come looking for me first. He'd be looking for you. He's not looking for the professional preachers. He's looking for everyone else. He's looking for guys who live their life by the lake, working on their nets, hauling in the fish. He's looking for folks who work in factories or in offices or in clinics or wherever, (laughs) And it's a good reminder for us. I mean, it's not just a reminder. This is what he wants to teach us, that the ministry of making new disciples for Jesus is for everyone, not just the clergy. And that is kind of countercultural in the church today because we have very much professionalized the ministry. Right? It's, it's just, just like everything else. You go off to school to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. Well, so if you do this, you got to go to seminary school if you'll be a preacher. And you come back and then you'll do it and we'll watch. And that's not Jesus' plan, is it? It's not his plan at all. He doesn't intend to have a small group of people who do all the ministry and everybody else does their job and watches and kind of hangs out and, well, we're sure glad they're doing that and making some disciples because if they didn't, nobody else would. That's not what he wants. He expects everyone he calls to be engaged in this shared partnership of making new disciples, fishing for people. And the New Testament's consistent on this. The New Testament is very consistent on this. And Paul in Ephesians 4 says, we've got some people who are set aside as pastors and it's their job to train the church, the saints, and equip them and give them the tools they need to do the work of ministry. It's helpful for me when I think about that to think about an athletics team. So pick your favorite sport, whatever it is, except golf. It doesn't work with golf quite as well. Maybe a little bit, but not as much. Basketball, maybe. Football, baseball. The coach is not on the field. The coach is important. The coach is writing the playbook. The coach is coming up with a strategy. The coach is teaching. You know, when you make that move, you got to do it this way, not that way. If you do it that way, you're going to get, you're going to get, somebody's going to lay you out. If you shoot it like that, you're going to miss. You know, you got to have the right form. You got to know how to take care of your body. You got to be engaged in this kind of physical fitness kinds of things. You got to eat the right stuff so that you can be equipped to play the game. But the coach, if the coach goes on the field, they get a penalty, right? Sideline foul kind of thing. You got to stay over there. Know your place, man. <laughs> Church is a lot like that. Not exactly, but a lot. There are some who are set aside. This is when we talk about ordained ministry. Some who are set aside to spend their time equipping everyone else to work on a strategy, to work on the overall organization, big picture, vision. How do we put the right people in the right places? You know, that's something that we need some people. We need good people. (laughs) Maybe God's calling some of you people to do that job. I don't know. Maybe he is right now. But we need people doing those kinds of things who are set aside to coach everyone else on how to win the world for Jesus. Because if nobody's coming up with a strategy, we're going to be running around all over the place getting the floor wiped. The other team's going to wipe the floor with us. You've seen it on, you know, you've seen it on sports and different teams. The church, and you've probably seen it in different churches. So we need some folks who are set aside, but they're not the professional ministry doers so that everybody else can just kind of watch and hang out and, oh, we sure are glad they're doing it. We need to be thinking about that as we get ready to find a children's ministry right? The children's minister, friends, hear me when I say this, is not a really expensive babysitter. (laughs) A children's minister is not a really expensive babysitter. Not at all, not even close. A children's minister is someone who is able to lead leaders, They're not back there by themselves. They're not back there doing the job solo with maybe a couple of folks helping out to make sure that stuff gets passed out and kids have their crayons and whatever. That's not the model for effective, fruitful, multiplication children's ministry. If you, you can do it that way, but you'll have maybe 15 or 20 kids, and after that, it's just too much for one person to handle. What you want is a dynamic leader who knows how to equip other leaders to disciple children and their families. And then, all of a sudden, that team can get as big as you want it because you've got one person who is devoting their full energy to training, equipping, organizing, visioning, strategizing, making sure that nobody falls through the cracks and everybody gets cultivated and nurtured in Jesus. Right, But that's a different model, isn't it? It's not one person who's paid to do that job and by themselves. It's one person who's set aside to lead everyone else. You get into that, all of a sudden, the, oppor- you know, the sky's the limit. Opportunities abound. We've got to hear what Jesus says here. He's trying to reproduce something for everybody. He's he's giving us a model that all of us can reproduce. Uh, Not just a professional group of trained ministers, but everybody gets the opportunity to make disciples, to teach new people. It's the common vocation of every follower of Jesus. It's what it means to follow Jesus. (laughs) He just said, follow me, and then fills in the blank with this next thing. Jesus calls all disciples to make new disciples, and that's his point here. That's his point. And that means, friends, that it's not an option. It's about obedience, right? Making new disciples is not an option. It's a command. It's not sort of, hey, you know, if you're mood or if you think you have the skills, maybe you could spend some time this week trying to find somebody and making it you know doing some fishing for people he doesn't approach it this is he he just wants obedience and I wonder how we kind of get ourselves where we think all right I love Jesus I'm following Jesus I haven't told anyone about him in 10 years but I still love Jesus I'm still following him and I wonder how do we get ourselves into that mindset like how do we and I know it's true because I do it sometimes and I, and I know it's true because Everyone I've ever pastored, except for like three people, do it. We we let a lot of time go by without reaching new people for Jesus. I'm talking to myself as much as anyone else. It's very easy. There have been some seasons where I've been very intentional about just I'm going to go take the next hour and look for disciples. <laughs> right? But it's very hard to make that a discipline, a lifelong discipline. It's very hard. I know from experience. It's very hard to do it consistently for the long haul. It's very much a discipline. But we cannot truthfully say we are obeying Jesus if we are not actively involved in making disciples. Let me say that one more time. We cannot truthfully say that we are obeying Jesus if we are not somehow actively involved in making disciples, fishing for people. I mean, he said it, do it. <laughs> and we have to or else we're not obeying him. And we just we need to reckon with that. That there are things that Jesus wants and if we don't do them, We can say we love him all we want, but we're not obeying him. So do we love him enough to obey him? Do we love him enough to go out and fish for people? Sacrifices. Let me say that again. Fishing for people, making disciples, requires sacrifice. I mean, look at these guys, right? Put yourself in Peter's and Andrew's position. Jesus walks up. They're out there. I mean, these guys are at work. Don't you hate it when somebody comes? you got a job. you got to get done by a certain time, and somebody comes along, and they're distracting you from your work, and you're like, come on, i got to get done, and you're taking my time, and I'm, I'm going to have to stay late because you're just talking, you won't stop. That ever happen to you? It happens sometimes. So here's Jesus. These guys are out there. They're probably trying to finish up their work for the day, and all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. Follow me. I'll teach you how to fish for people. And they're going, hey, we've got work to do. Why are you wasting our time? We've got it. That's not what they do, is it? It's not even remotely what they do. He says to them, verse 19, "Follow me, I'll make you fish for people." And immediately. Immediately. Without hesitation. They left their nets. You know what that means? It means they left their salary. Their livelihood. I mean, those nets, that's how they pay their bills. Those nets, that's how they run their business. That's how their kids eat. That's how their neighbors eat. thats I mean, the whole community is depending on these guys doing their job, catching fish to sell in the market so that everybody can have some meat for lunch. Jesus shows up, says, follow me, I'll teach you how to fish for people. Not, he doesn't even say, I'll teach you, I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. I mean, put yourself in their place. Sometimes following Jesus requires economic sacrifice. I'm so grateful that you all know that and are committed to it (laughs) because you just raised almost $40,000 this week. Somebody undoubtedly has said, hey, you know what? The children are more important than this thing we were going to do with that. Praise God for that. the other guys, the sons of Zebedee not only walk away from their income, they walk away from their dad for this season And we've talked before about how in the ancient world family loyalty was the highest level I mean that was the, the most important thing you have to do this you have to take care of your parents and if you you know if you disrespect your parents you are, a shunned, outcast, scoundrel of a person. Jesus comes along. They not only walk away from their income, they walk away from their dad to follow Jesus. They are willing to make sacrifices for Jesus. And they don't stop saying, well, you know, Jesus, I hear you saying follow me. Can we talk about that for a minute? You know, Because I got some things going on. I got some bills to pay. We just took out a, took out a mortgage, or we just took out a loan for a new boat. And uh, some, yeah, we got to get that paid off. And we get done with that. Maybe we can come back. Do some of this following stuff. You can teach us how to fish for people. That's uh, never done that before. It sounds really interesting. I'd like to learn. But for, you know, that's not what happens here, is it? They just went. They just followed him. And Jesus, he's kind of a take-it-or-leave-it guy, isn't he? What do you think he would have said if they said, eh, you know, we got some things going on"? <laughs> he probably would have said, "I'll go call someone else." So they're making sacrifices to prioritize Jesus and to prioritize reaching new people for Jesus. Economic sacrifices, time sacrifices. I mean, that's a big deal, isn't it? It takes a sacrifice to get up and show up at church on Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock and spend a couple hours reading the Bible and talking about what the Lord's doing. Not everybody can make it that time, but maybe Thursday night would work. And it may mean saying no to one thing to say yes to this. But never, we should never have the idea that following Jesus requires no sacrifice. I mean, after all, his body was broken and his blood was shed. How dare we think we can follow him without sacrificing something, whether it's money or time or energy or what? all sorts of things. We see that in this text. We see that in this text. Jesus calls all disciples, to make new disciples, and he wants them to know it will take sacrifice. And I hope it's becoming exceedingly clear to you that following Jesus is not an easy thing to do. Sometimes we treat it like it is. You know, got to catch church from time to time. If you miss it, you can just watch it on TV because Jesus doesn't really demand anything. So many churches you can walk through the door and you meet a Jesus who doesn't really require anything. We'll make it as easy as we can to make sure that you're comfortable and you can just st- stick around and just so we can count you in our group. and Maybe the Lord will get through eventually, but we're not going to press too hard. That's not what I find in the Gospel of Matthew. I find a Jesus who says, drop everything and follow me. And I think if we were to ask these guys, Peter and Andrew, if, if they were here, if we could just say, hey, you know, I mean, you guys, you walked away from a lot for him. And there's a place later in the gospel where Peter, these guys are saying, hey, we've sacrificed everything for you, Jesus. We've walked away from our families and our homes and everything we've sacrificed for you. And they, that was a thing for them, an ongoing thing, and they wrestled with that. And if I think I'm, I'd be willing, I, I, if they were here and we could ask them and say, Peter, You sacrificed so much for Him. Would you do it again? What do you think He'd say? Would I do it again? A thousand times. Ten thousand times. Yes, we sacrificed a great deal. Yes, we gave up livelihood and family and home and friendships. And yes, we gave up so much. Yes, we even, some of us died following Him. But how can we we not do it again? Because what we receive from Him is worth far more and is far greater than anything we've ever walked away. I believe, brothers and sisters, that they would say that what they gained in Jesus was of exceedingly greater value than what they walked away from. Surely they would say, how could we not do it again and again and again. He died for us. He gave everything for us. He gave his life for us so that we could have life. When we were strangers, when we were his enemies, when we were far from him, when we were more focused on our salary than we were his kingdom, when we were more focused on our obligations than we were his kingdom, he gave everything for us. Brothers and sisters, when you sacrifice to follow Jesus, He gives you something that is worth more than everything you've ever walked away from. The thing is, you don't find out what that feels like until you do it. You don't find out what it feels like until you give it up and follow Him. So, So what does it look like? Jesus calls his disciples to make new disciples. What does that look like? Well, it's very straightforward. It's not very complicated. One of the words is evangelism. And evangelism is where you tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus. And uh, this is one of those places where the value comes in. Because if you've never been in the room and somebody meets Jesus for the first time, you're missing out. If you've never been in the room when somebody meets Jesus for the first time and all of a sudden all the shame that they've carried for all the sins and the things they've done and they know people look down on them and all of a sudden that evaporates because the Son of God loved them and gave himself for them. If you've never been in the room when somebody experiences freedom from that kind of shame, you're missing out. If you've never been in the room when someone all of a sudden realizes that Jesus loves them not for what they can do for him, but because of who they are. If you've never been in the room when someone all of a sudden is freed from years of guilt, from all the people they've hurt, and all the damage they've done, in a moment, the weight is lifted because Jesus loves them. I mean, you put that up there with your wedding day and the birth of your children, friends. It's one of the best feelings in the world. And it is a moment of eternal consequence. There's two questions that help me with that. Say I'm in a conversation, and you don't want to sound like you're preaching to somebody. Do enough of that on Sundays, right? Conversations there, and maybe it feels like, hey, maybe the Lord's at work, and maybe there's an opportunity to kind of get a word in for Jesus here, but what does that look like? Oftentimes, I'll just say, hey, you know, we're talking. What do you know about Jesus? And uh, it's a pretty open-ended question, and you wouldn't believe some of the things I've heard. (laughs) And then just listen and see what they say. Chances are they have heard of Jesus, though in some places that's not the case. And chances are they've heard something about Jesus, and most people will talk if you give them a chance. Not everybody, but most. So just ask the question and then be quiet and listen. See what they say. Very quickly you'll begin to tell whether Jesus is just someone they've heard of or someone they know. Very quickly. And the more you do it, the more sense you'll get. Is this someone, Jesus, is this someone who's heard of Jesus or someone who... Knows Jesus. And then there's a second question. If I think it, if you know, still trying to discern where this conversation's going. You told me what you know about Jesus. What do you know about his cross? And that's the question, brothers and sisters. That's the question. And I've been, I've been in the room in the Bible Belt in Alabama with 30 somethings and asked that question what do you know about his cross? Heard all about Jesus. What do you know about his cross? One fellow looked back at me, sitting in my study in a church, and said, you know, I see crosses all over town. I have no idea what they mean. 30-something years walking up and down the streets of every town in the Bible Belt. Seeing, There's more crosses than there are people in most counties in Alabama. He had no, no one had ever explained the meaning of that symbol to this man. And the Lord Jesus Christ gave me the opportunity to be the one first person to tell him. And all I can tell you is, if you've never been in the room and somebody meets Jesus for the first time, there's nothing like it. What do you know about Jesus? It's a pretty easy question. And the conversation all of a sudden is on the other person. <laughs> you just have to listen. What do you know about his cross? But be ready when they say, you know, I'm not quite sure. Can you tell me about that? Be ready to give an account of the hope that you have. It's not as hard as it sounds. So that's piece one. Piece one is the first step. But then what do you do with somebody after they meet Jesus? That's the beginning, not the end. And this is the place where Jesus' ministry shows us what we need to be doing because here he is. He takes these four guys, and he calls them to himself, and then he finds a few more, and then he finds a few more. Before you know, what, he's got 12. The first Christian small group was with Jesus <laughs> by the Sea of Galilee. Right? And Then he takes these guys, and they spend the next couple of years learning from him, listening to him, praying with him, camping, traveling, uh, doing ministry together. and Eventually, he sends them out to do ministry on his behalf. Hey, let me let me let me tell you about the kingdom. Sermon on the Mount comes along. He instructs them. Hey, let me teach you how to pray. Hey, let's read the Bible together. Hey, let me uh, let me tell you about what God is like. Hey, let me talk to you about what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he's teaching them and he's instructing them. And then they get the day comes along and somebody, some there's some hungry people around. And instead of saying hey let me do that and you watch, he says hey why don't you do it? Hey why don't you feed them? Oh hey there's somebody over there that needs to be healed. Why don't you go care for them? And that's what discipleship looks like. That's what fishing for people looks like. I'm finding new people who don't know Jesus, introducing them to Jesus, and teaching them to follow him. And that's what the Lord expects from all of us. No exceptions. That's what the Lord expects from all of us. No exceptions. And he promises, he promises when we do it to show up with his best. You ever feel like you're not experiencing Jesus' best in your life? Maybe it's because we're not going to the places where he promises to give his best. You think those guys in that moment were getting a glimpse of Jesus' best for their life? You bet they were. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. Jesus' best is full, flourishing, whole human life. He wants to take away the things that bring guilt and he wants to take away the things that bring shame and he wants to take away the condemnation. He died to do it. His body was broken. His blood was shed to free us from those things and he was raised to new life to give us new life. That's his best. It's what he wants to do in us and it's what he wants to do through us for the community and for the world. And here's the thing, friends, I promise you and I say with everything I've got, I want Jesus' best for you. And I want Jesus' best for this church and this community and this state and this country and this world. I'm confident that you want his best for that too. But it starts right here on day one with Jesus saying, Follow me and I'll teach you how to reach people. Because if we're not doing that, we'll never bless the world, we'll never get his best will never live into his fullness his calling his joy don't you want his joy